From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome, I'm Larry Mantle. You're listening to oboist Youssef Latif's version of the love theme from Spartacus, the 1960 classic, starring and produced by the late Kirk Douglas. With movie theaters closed across the country, streaming services are seeing enormous increases in viewership. The same for broadcast and cable networks. Our Film Week critics have been among the heaviest viewers, and they're ready to share what they've found for you. It's all coming up on Film Week here on KPCC. Preppy wants everyone to be prepared for any situation. By bringing design to the forefront of their emergency kits, they are making earthquake prep less daunting and maybe even a little fun. Made in California, Preppy's attractive canvas and leather bags are designed to be displayed right in your living room or office. If an emergency strikes, your most essential supplies are at arm's length, not stashed somewhere deep in your closet. Though the Preppy line is quite handsome on the outside, the contents they include are incredibly comprehensive, helping you face real emergency situations with confidence. Go to Preppy.co, that's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek for more information. Welcome to Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Very good to have you with us. Our program has changed a little bit now that movie theaters are closed because of efforts to contain COVID-19. But there are all kinds of wonderful things available for you to see at home, either through streaming services, through broadcast or cable networks, uh, also available on Blu-ray or CD. We're going to be talking about a wide array of films and television programs that are recommended by our Film Week critics. Joining us this week, uh, Amy Nicholson, film writer for The Guardian. She also hosts the podcast Unspooled and the podcast miniseries Zoom. And Wade Major is film critic for Synagogues.com. Well, let's begin with what's relatively new, available through video on demand, streaming, and the like. With the film, I still believe the romantic drama tells the story of Christian music singer-songwriter Jeremy Camp. The film is directed by Andrew and John Irwin, who are brothers, and it stars K.J. Appa and Britt Robertson. Wade, what do you think of I Still Believe? Actually, uh, am surprised how good I think it is. The the Irwin brothers have kind of revolutionized the so-called faith-based market. They made a previous film a few years ago called I Can Only Imagine, which is based on a famous Christian song, uh, Christian pop music song. It's also kind of a musical biopic, which made an enormous amount of money worldwide. And uh, they're kind of doing the same thing here. I was not familiar with Jeremy Camp walking into the film, but um, they did the same thing here. They they got you know an A-list cast or a relatively B-plus cast. Uh, K.J. Appa, who was on Riverdale on television, and Britt Robertson, who of course was in Tomorrowland and Mother's Day. So these are these are legit Hollywood actors with some name value, and um, it's basically the story of of Jeremy Camp and his his first wife, who uh, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and they went ahead and. Got got married anyway. And what makes this work is that it deviates from the the faith-based formula. It doesn't go where you think it's going to go. It doesn't do what you expect it to do. 
Um, it still sort of has the same agenda, but it, it finds a new way into the genre, which I think is a little bit more mainstream than, uh, than what people might be expecting. So uh, I would say, you know, even if, if you have an aversion to this genre, because it is so typically formulaic, um, you might want to take a, take a look at this, because it's, uh, it has, it, as a romance, it still works. The film is written by John Irwin and John Gunn. It's rated PG and available on Video On Demand, I Still Believe, is the film. Also available on Video Demand platforms, the comedy Banana Split, which stars Hannah Marks and Dylan Sprouse. The film's directed by Benjamin Kasulke. Uh, the screenwriters are Hannah Marks and Joey Power. Amy, what would you think of Banana Split? Well, I have been really looking forward to seeing Banana Split because Hannah Marks is one of my favorite young writers who's working right now. She did a film last year called After Everything that was an incredibly smart young cancer romantic comedy. She's 26 years old, and here she is with her second script that she's got out that she's also starring in. And Banana Split is about, I guess you could describe it as a high school love triangle. There's two girls, there's one guy, but the couple that the film really most cares about is the secret friendship that the two girls have even though one of the girls is currently dating the other girl's ex, ex-boyfriend. And it is this really lovely, compelling story about these two female friends who fall in love with each other platonically, despite the absolute awkwardness of how they met, why they met, and make all these pacts to each other about, like, we won't bring up this man, we'll never talk about it. And even though they try to hate each other, they just really connect. And you can see in the film that Hannah Marks, who's playing um, the lead girl, April, she's the ex-girlfriend, and she has this really great opening montage of their whole entire relationship with this boy before they break up. That she and her co-star, um, Leanna Liberato, they've been best friends since they were in grade school, and they have this chemistry that really just exists in this film. It's absolutely lovely. I think it's a very good, but if I was like going to watch a movie virtually with my friends this week, this would be a good one. All right. What do you think of Banana Split, Wade? I was shocked how much I really uh, kind of enjoyed it. I mean, it's definitely a Gen Z movie. It, it aims right at their generation, the things, that's, the things that are happening right now for high schoolers and young adults, um, the way their world is organized, the way that their relationships are organized. It's something that I should have found completely, completely alienating and uninteresting. And for some reason, Hannah Marks really does have this amazing um, kind of deadpan charm, uh, this sort of uh, shaggy dog lovability that just crosses over. I especially love the fact that the film takes its name from a 1979 um, Europop hit by the Belgian singer Leo, who I was exposed to when I lived in France in the mid-'80s. <laughs> That's a pretty heady thing for somebody in their 20s to do, is to name your movie after a 1979 European pop hit. So it's got all kinds of smarts. It's a very, very smart script, and it really does get into some interesting emotional territory that, that youth-oriented movies don't typically do. I, I think uh, I think Hannah Marks is a real talent, and I'm very excited to see where she goes. So she not only stars, but she co-wrote the screenplay with Joey Power for Banana Split. The film is available on multiple video on-demand platforms. The movie is rated R. Uh, Vivarium is a science fiction drama starring Jesse Eisenberg and Imogene Poots. Lorcan Finnegan directed and Garrett Shanley wrote the screenplay. Amy, what do you think of Vivarium? Yeah, Vivarium is a very high art fable is how I would describe it. You know, it's about this young couple 
who takes a tour of a home in suburbia that they're half serious about, not really that serious about. It's not the kind of place you'd think you'd want to live in even before you knew it was evil. Um, everything in the house, everything in this whole neighborhood looks exactly the same. It's all these identical row houses, incre- incredibly surreal. And what happens is they get trapped there. And it's impossible to leave. You know, it's very mystical and magical. And they're forced to raise a child who just shows up out of nowhere. And really what this film, I think, is trying to be about is, you know, we have this way of looking at the animal world and the natural world and saying, like, oh, that's just how things go. You know, in the opening, the young couple, they kind of shrug off the death of a young cuckoo bird and, you know, or or of of the bird that a young cuckoo bird is killed. You know, cuckoo birds are famous for going into the nest of other birds, kicking out the rightful eggs. And then being um, forced to, then forcing the parents to raise them themselves. Hmm. And this is about like, how do we feel when that hap- when we watch that happen to humans? Which I really was so on board with this film for such a long time. But it's a really interesting setup, really great acting, but it just doesn't go anywhere after that. And I was absolutely disappointed because I want to love this film. It's very much my kind of jam. Vivarium Wade. Yeah, I agree with almost all of that. I uh, I found myself loving this film for the better part of the first hour, laughing uh, because it's my sick sense of humor much of the time. I was shocked because Jesse Eisenberg is not an actor I normally like, and Imogen Putz is an actress I adore, uh, and I, didn't, I couldn't see that relationship working. It does. Um, it was stylish. It was it was moving in the right direction. And then about the one hour mark, I realized they're they're painting themselves into a corner and they have no intention of getting out of it. And it just kind of goes nowhere at the end. It's very disappointing. That said, I do think it's worth watching as long as you are prepared for the disappointment because there's a lot of value in that first hour. Um, it, it, what this is basically doing, it's a resume film. This is a huge European co-production. There are like seven or eight different companies and film funds involved. There's Danish money in this. There's Belgian money in it. It's an Irish film, but it's a co-production with the, with the continent. And uh, uh, what, what's going on here is that Lorcan Finnegan, who directed it, and Garrett Shanley, who wrote it, this is their resume film. They, they were able to finally put together a co-production that's very stylish. And even if the film doesn't ultimately work, you can't look at this film and say, these guys don't have talent. They're going to get work out of this. All right. The film is Vivarium Science Fiction Drama, starring Jesse Eisenberg, Imogen Poots. Lorcan Finnegan directs its rated R on multiple video-on-demand platforms. Also out this week is the World War II set drama Resistance, also starring Jesse Eisenberg, Ed Harris, and Edgar Ramirez. Jonathan uh, Jakubowicz uh, is the uh, director and screenwriter. Wade? Uh, Jesse Eisenberg, two for two for me this week. I, I was stunned. Um, the the story of Marcel Marceau as a as a French resistance fighter has never really been told, and that is effectively what this does. Uh, Jakubowicz, who's really been coming on the uh, last few years, does an amazing job. This is a beautifully beautifully written and directed film. I don't think it corresponds terribly closely to the actual story of Marcel Marceau. I don't think uh, that Marcel Marceau went toe to toe with Klaus Barbie, at, you know, in Lyon. Uh, during that period, but they, for dramatic purposes, they have taken a considerable license, and it works. It's uh, it, it, and Jesse Eisenberg looks like Marceau. A lot of people may not know that Marcel Marceau uh, came from a Jewish immigrant family, uh, Ukrainian and Polish Jewish immigrants. Uh, so you know, there's a there's a really interesting story here that most people are probably not familiar with, 
and um, in in small, very small parts, Edgar Ramirez and Ed Harris playing uh, General Patton in a flashback frame story. Uh, really, it all comes together in a very, very powerful and compelling way. I liked it a lot. We're talking about the film Resistance, Jesse Eisenberg, Ed Harris starring. Amy, what do you think? Well, first, I wish Wade and I were in the same room because I would give him a high five for coming around <laughs> on Jesse Eisenberg, who I absolutely love. I've always been a big Jesse person. Um, and I have to also say, I count myself as a person who did not know that this was Marcel Marceau's story at all. I actually didn't know this film was about him until the very end. And then as soon as the credits rolled, I was like, hold on. And I went and did a ton of reading about Marcel Marceau's life. I have to say, I didn't love this film quite as much as Wade. I respected it. It felt to me kind of like the very dialogue on the no simplistic film that you maybe show a middle school class and that they love and you help try to introduce them into what life was like under the occupation and the kind of rise of resistance fighters like it has a very youthful like nazis versus the freaks um vibe to it there's a whole scene they do have kind of a they have a character they have a Klaus barbie in the film who becomes almost like the michael myers of it he's the one nazi you see constantly he seems to be everywhere stalking everybody at one point you watch him kill sort of a circus freak show i guess you would describe it and it's just this idea of you know really hammering home, underlining that, you know, Nazis don't like art, Nazis don't like youth, Nazis don't like, you know, rebellion, fun, anything that doesn't fit a norm. And so it felt very teenagery to me in that moment. Um, but I'm so thrilled to know the Marcel Mousseau story. Like that alone, I can't believe I just thought of him as the walking against the wind guy. And it really put his entire career into context for me that I didn't have before. We're talking about the film, Res- what was that, Wade? I said it's amazing that no one has ever thought to tell this story in any form before. Yeah. Resistance is the film from writer-director Jonathan Jakubowicz. It's rated R, available on video on demand. Resistance, starring Jesse Eisenberg, Ed Harris, Edgar Ramirez. The Portuguese drama Vitalina Varela uh, stars... Vitalina Varela, who also co-wrote the screenplay with the director of the film, Pedro Costa. Wade? So Pedro Costa is a very particular kind of art film director. Uh, he's Portuguese, of course, and, and he makes the kinds of movies, and I don't mean this to sound uh, insulting, but he makes the kinds of movies which most people could probably leave and walk out for 10 or 15 minutes and come back and not feel as if they've missed anything. They are extremely slow, very methodical, uh, every frame is artfully composed, and they are not for all tastes. They are for a very particular kind of art house sensibility. Um, this is a spinoff from his previous film in 2014 called Horse Money, which introduced this particular story, and they took this story and now built it out into a complete movie. And it's a, it's about a Cape Verdean woman who um, who is in Portugal and uh, who goes back to find that the husband who never never called for her, never brought her back, has died. And so it's basically an emotional exploration of grief, of poverty, of uh, lots of issues related to Cape Verde, which aren't really necessarily known to the rest of the world unless you're, you're Portuguese, because it's an, you know, it's an island archipelago that belongs to Portugal, and unless you're a tourist who sees the best part of it, you don't see the darker side of it. So this is... Um, this is a very artful, a very methodical, very slow and deliberately paced look at the people of Cape Verde and their struggles as seen through this one experience of this one woman. Uh, real briefly, Amy, what did you think of Vitalina Varela? 
Yeah, I mean, I would describe it as the kind of film where you could freeze frame every image and it would look like one of the dark Goya paintings, but you almost don't even have to because he holds every image so long that you're just watching a living painting. You know, of everything we saw this week, this is the one film that I really regretted not being able to see in a theater because I think it is a theatrical movie. You have to sink into it and get into the rhythm, and it was a lot. It was harder to love this film at home. Right? All right, the film is the Portuguese drama Vitalina Varela, and it's available to stream from uh, the distributor's website, grasshopperfilm.com. Grasshopperfilm.com. You can see the Portuguese film streaming there. It's unrated. We have many more new films to talk about available to watch at home, plus some older favorites, too, with our critics back in one minute. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPECC. I'm Larry Mansell. It's a different type of film week these days with movie theaters closed, but our critics nonetheless have been poring over what's available on streaming services, cable and broadcast networks, what's available on Blu-ray, all the different ways we can watch terrific film and television shows in our own home. I'm joined this week by Film Week critics Wade Major and Amy Nicholson. Up next is the drama Uncorked about a young man who dreams of becoming a master sommelier. The film stars Mamadou Ache, Courtney B. Vance, and Nisi Nash. Prentice Penny is the writer-director of Uncorked. Amy? Yeah, this is a very simple, very lightweight but charming in its own way, light comedy. I mean, what this film is about is you have Mamadou Afi, who's a young actor I've been really interested in since he was in Patty Cakes a few years ago. He's a kid who is the third in a generation to inherit a barbecue joint in Memphis that's incredibly popular. You can see the lines out the door. But all he wants to be is a sommelier, specifically one of the 230 master sommeliers that exist in the world. And so this is his his tour of going through sommelier school. It's almost monomaniacally obsessed with wine. I mean, this is this film you watch if you want to see 30 different scenes where people take a sip of wine and then try to describe what it tastes like. And it, you know, it starts off in a way that I thought had a lot of its own personal charm. You know, um, the character himself, he likens Chardonnay to Jay-Z and Pinot Grigio to Kanye and Riesling to Drake. And he explains it all actually fairly well. Um, but then after that, it's just, I mean, I feel like at the end, you could quiz me on the 13 wine regions of Germany, and I would kind of get it. <laughs> well, that's impressive. What do you think, Wade, of Uncorked? I, it's okay. I mean, it's uh, we get this movie, you know, three or four times a decade. It's the story of the, 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 the person. Usually it's a, it's a man, but sometimes we have it with, with daughters, uh, where they want to do, follow their passion and, and leave the family business. And uh, the parents, or the father in most cases, is very stern and takes, it takes a while to come around. And you always have that coming around scene where the audience is supposed to be very, very moved. The most famous of these, obviously, is Billy Elliot. Uh, there's a bit of Saturday Night Fever here as well, but it's uh, it, that there's a reason why we get this movie three or four times a decade, and it's because it largely works because people relate to this. They relate to 
having parental expectations that uh, that are a little bit more constrained than their dreams. Um, that said, you know, the idea of this, this young man in Memphis who wants to be a sommelier has a certain compelling quality to it, and it's, it's hard not to sort of love the journey, even if it's a familiar journey, and even if the filmmaking and the writing is sometimes a little bit sloppy. I, I, you know, this is a Netflix film, and I think the, the weakness here is that Netflix doesn't really have that studio oversight of the way that these films are put together. If there were a stronger company with a stronger hand, I think this could have been a better film. We're talking about Uncorked, the film written and directed by Prentice Penny. It streams on Netflix and is unrated. I have some breaking news for listeners to our Friday Live Film Week. Those of you listening Saturday, this will be 24 hours old. But uh, former Los Angeles City Councilman Mitch Englander has agreed to plead guilty to a federal criminal charge stemming from his uh, obstruction of a public corruption investigation. Uh, He was alleged to have accepted gifts, including cash, hotel rooms, and expensive meals from a businessman during trips to Las Vegas and Palm Springs back in 2017. The Justice Department just announced that a plea agreement has been filed in federal court, uh, and the former L.A. City Councilman Mitch Englander has agreed to plead guilty to one count of scheming to falsify material facts. Englander resigned uh, as a Los Angeles City Councilman at the end of 2018 with almost two years left on his term. He represented uh, the West San Fernando Valley District 12 during his time on the Los Angeles City Council. Again, former L.A. City Councilman Mitchell Englander, according to the Justice Department, has agreed to plead guilty to one count uh, involved in allegations that he obstructed the public corruption investigation related to his acceptance of gifts. There'll be more details of this, of course, uh, throughout Friday afternoon here on KPCC. We continue with our critics and their reviews of new films out on various at-home viewing platforms. The next one is Dosed, a Canadian documentary uh, directed by Tyler Chandler. Wade? Yeah, this is an advocacy film, and that's okay. It it sort of owns it. It doesn't give you a contrary point of view, but it is provocative insofar as it it uh, embraces a very singular point of view, which is the use of uh, hallucinogenic and psychedelic uh, treatments in curing opioid addiction. Um, Tyler Chandler focuses his film on a friend of his, this young woman who, despite a, a you know a relatively normal middle class upbringing, somehow became an opi- opioid addict, uh, all the way down to heroin and everything else. And um, her life has been a disaster. And she is now going to undergo a rather lengthy period of trying to overcome her opioid, opioid addiction through hallucin- hallucinogenic therapies, magic mushrooms, aboga, things like this. And that's what this film is. It is a, it is a journey that through her therapies and through her um, attempted rehab and whether or not it works. And he says it straight up at the beginning. What do you hope to get from this? And she says, I just hope I, I, that I can be sober. And um, to that extent, it's a very, very interesting journey. Again, I would like to have seen perhaps some, some outside expertise, some contrary points of view, some, something to sort of give it a little bit more perspective and scope. Um, but I can do that on my own. The film, again, does not pretend to be anything other than a very, very singular perspective on this issue. Dosed is the documentary. Amy, what did you think? 
Yeah, I agree with Wade. And for me, I think the key weakness here is that the film is really narratively based on Adrienne and her particular story. And it feels like her relationship with the with the director himself seems to either be either too close or not close enough. They seem to be like high school acquaintances, which puts them in kind of this limbo state where he doesn't really seem comfortable pushing her the way a documentary might do if she was a stranger to her to like give her more access to be more real to really tell her story and yet they don't seem to be so close that she just opens up to him anyways there's this kind of awkwardness in the way the camera deals with her where I felt like I never really knew her enough to care that much about her story and then the whole documentary is really watching her rise and fall and watching her rise and fall and I felt more dispassionate about it than I really wanted to be because I am interested in the science and there is a drug in here called iboga that I had actually never heard of as a detoxing medicine that they say can help wipe a lot of your brain and kind of reboot your internal system. The film is Dosed, it's unrated, and it can be rented through the film's website, dosedmovie.com. The Occupant, a Spanish thriller starring Javier Gutierrez and Mario Casas. The film written and directed by Alex Pastor and David Pastor. This is the week for brother films. Uh, The Occupant is uh, on Netflix. Amy? Yeah, so you remember like all the 90s style dramatic thrillers where there's like jealous women stalking other women because they want to steal their husband or their baby or their haircut or whatever. I mean, this is that movie, but updated to kind of our class consciousness social age where it has a man who's an agent, an ad executive who's sort of aging out of the business. He's no longer considered cool. He has a very humiliating job interview in the first scene. And he and his wife and his young son realize they have to give up their their luxury apartment in Barcelona and move to a smaller place that he finds beneath him. And so he becomes obsessed with the young man who takes over his apartment and moves into it with his cooler, younger, richer family. And he just starts stalking them, letting himself in and trying to destroy this boy's life. And the thing is, is like, you know, I think it's interesting that this is kind of a social film that isn't so much about like the have nots and the haves, you know, that extreme divide that we saw in something like Parasite. It's more about a guy who used to have and now doesn't have just quite that same level. It's more in that upper layer that's incredibly bitter and incredibly angry. But where the film really goes off the rails is that, you know, the man himself, the stalking ad executive, is kind of dull and very introverted. And then suddenly he's this brilliant supervillain who can do anything he wants. And he's like thinking 12 steps ahead. And you're like, if you're that good, I think you actually could get another job. Um, so I, it became a gigantic eye roller. Yeah, what do you think, Wade, of The Occupant? Yeah. I agree completely. It, it, everybody wants to be Hitchcock, don't they? And they don't really understand what makes Hitchcock Hitchcock. This is, I think what Amy was saying is this is like hand the rock to the cradle for the parasite generation. Uh, and that's exactly what it is. It, what's really unfortunate here is that they start with a premise that suggests one movie, and then, but because they're so determined to make a particular kind of movie, they sort of force the narrative in the direction of let's, let's have everything go completely off the rails and crazy and, and, and thriller. There was a, there was a moment uh, about 15 years ago when there were a number of films being made in France about workplace anxiety and unemployment and, and uh, the effect that that has on people's psychology, especially when you're middle-aged and you have, you know, you used to make money and now you're seeing your life go slip away and your earnings slip away. And this could have been that kind of movie. It, it sets itself up to have a great deal to say about a particular very real-life situation. And rather than pursue it in a dramatic fashion, 
they spin it into a psychotic thriller. And it's really unfortunate that, All right. that they didn't sort of see the potential. The Occupant is on Netflix. The film's unrated. Uh, the thriller tape is av- available on Video On Demand. Isabel Furman, Ana Rosa Mudstar, Deborah Kampmeyer is the writer-director. Amy, just uh, briefly uh, about tape. Yeah, the setup here is this is a very art house story about uh, two actresses in New York. There's kind of a running joke about every time they go to an audition, everybody just has long blonde hair. One of them opens the film clearly having gone through some sort of a trauma. She's covered in blood. She shaves her own head and she starts stalking another young actress and watching as this young actress falls under the wing of a man who says he's a huge casting director, producer, he's going to help her career, he's going to get her tapes going, he's going to do everything. And she is stalking them and making these videos with secret cameras that are very blurry and hard to see. It's an artistic choice that doesn't quite work. And as this film comes together, you know, it becomes very much about like the sexual harassment climate, about Weinstein, about Cosby. And it starts being very heavy and clumsy. And I was brokenhearted about it because there's a bleeding raw anger into this film to director Deborah Kempmeyer to what she's trying to say in here, a sadness that's so credible, and the film doesn't quite come together, but I really want to. Uh, Wait, real briefly, tape. You know what? That's exactly what my reaction was, and I was afraid that because I'm a man, I was missing something, so uh, I'm glad Amy really, she nailed it. It's exactly that. Tape is available on video on demand. It's unrated, and we've got the Netflix documentary uh, directed by Ellen Page and Ian Daniel, There's Something in the Water. It's a documentary about racism in uh, Nova Scotia, environmental racism. Wade? Yeah, I mean, this is something very, very close to Ellen Page's heart. She's from Nova Scotia. It's very, very parochial, but it is, uh, you can, the fact that she cares so deeply about it kind of carries you along. The idea basically being that Nova Scotia, despite its sort of pastoral uh, reputation, has historically isolated um, uh, ethnic communities in areas where there is environmental degradation. Is it is this on purpose, or is, is this by accident, or is this sort of benign racism? What's, what's going on. And so this is her attempt to, to get to the root of what caused this and why it's so hurtful to her that she discovered this about her, her home. It's a Netflix documentary. There's something in the water. It's unrated. I want to turn to our critics uh, briefly before we break just to get some vintage recommendations for classics. Amy, you have a number of them, but I didn't realize YouTube has a bunch of silent film classics available to watch. What are some of your favorites you can see on YouTube? Oh my gosh, there are so many silence on YouTube. It's fantastic because a lot of the stuff has fallen into public domain. Um, I'll be honest, this week, one of the things I did was I marathoned all of these Mary Pickford films that I hadn't seen since college. A couple I'd never seen at all. You know, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, A Little Princess, Poor Little Rich Girl, Tess of the Storm Country, both of her Tess of the Storm Countries. And, you know, if people haven't really watched a Mary Pickford film, we might know her as this touchstone woman who really created our Hollywood the way that it is. I mean, she started filming here in 1910, and she was the person who helped the industry overcome so many major hurdles in that first decade, including the 1918 flu, which was part of why I was thinking about it, about these films that she did mostly through ni- in 1917 and 18. Well, and and, uh, she, of course, one of the four United Artists that founded that studio and opened as its flagship what is now the Theater at Ace Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. Also, uh, Chaplin's The Gold Rush is on YouTube and the Murnau Classic Sunrise. 
Yes. I mean, these are the two gateway classics for people who want to fall in love with silent film. Or if you're home right now with somebody who doesn't think they love silent film, introduce them to the gold rush, introduce them to, song, to sunrise. I mean, what these are really briefly is, you know, it's Chaplin's um, and F.W. Murnau's vision for where they really wanted silent era blockbusters to go. And these are just landmark films done right before the industry transitioned to sound. They are so beautiful. And Sunrise itself came out two weeks before The Jazz Singer and bombed because people wanted to hear sound. It is really one of the hands-down most beautiful films that I've I've ever seen, and almost everybody I show it to, that's it. They are hooked on silent films from here on out. All right. Those are on YouTube. Amy Nicholson talking about those. Wade also has some classic films that are easy for you to see at home that he's going to share about, and uh, some of them lesser-known classics as well. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. You're listening to Film Week on KPCC. Now bringing you our critics' picks for the best to see at home, whether through streaming services, on Blu-ray, cable or satellite television, YouTube, as we just heard about uh, from Amy touting some of those great silent films that are available to be seen on YouTube. I just want to remind you that KPCC is still raising money during this spring membership period, and your financial support is absolutely essential so that we can bring you Film Week, so that our critics can still, uh, with safe physical distancing, join us from their homes to talk about their best uh, choices for at-home viewing. Please make your contribution right now. We are so close to fulfilling our million-dollar overall goal to assure we continue with full staffing and the full providing of services on KPCC. 866-888-5722 or kpcc.org. Thank you very much. Wade, uh, Amy was just telling us about all the great stuff on YouTube. Why don't you tell us about the Criterion channel? Oh, I love the Criterion Channel. I, I can't get enough. It's the best bargain there is. The Criterion Channel curates everything. So it's not like Netflix where they, they make these suggestions. They're algorithm generated. They have people who love movies and who put together these programs for you. And one of them uh, is Film Plays Itself, which is a collection of movies about movies and movie making. And it's wonderful. Oh, love it. It includes uh, the, the Busby Berkeley Great Footlight Parade uh, with James Cagney, just so brilliant in it. W- Billy Wilder, Sunset Boulevard. Uh, two from Vincent Minnelli, The Bad and the Beautiful with the late Kirk Douglas is just the, the most ruthless producer of all time. And then in two weeks in another town, he plays the most mentally unstable movie star of all time. Uh, eight and a Half, Godard's Contempt, William Greaves' amazing mind-bending psychotaxiplasm Part 1. Day for Night from Truffaut, Hollywood Shuffle from Robert Townsend, uh, adaptation by Spike Jones and Charlie Kaufman, The Player, which you know, uh, you know, you had a, a KPCC screening of not too long ago. I mean, really, just a great program. Yeah. And you can just watch this straight through, and it's just, it's just so, so cool and refreshing. Um, they've also got starting on April 1st a celebration of Toshiro Mifune's 100th birthday with 27 of his best films, most of them by Kurosawa, but a lot of other great stuff in here as well. The uh, the Samurai Trilogy, which was the first big breakthrough for Japanese films in the United States. So uh, really just you could sit there with Criterion all day long and never run out of things to find. Now, also, they have this series 
of film scores, like Quincy Jones, uh, uh, other series with particular stars. I mean, it's great. It's, it's, it's a collection of movies that were all scored by Quincy Jones. And uh, that's the only connective thread between them. But it's fascinating, and you, you don't realize the breadth of material that Quincy Jones worked on. And so yeah. you watch those movies, and you focus on his music, and it's a real education. Yeah, In the Heat of the Night, I think Anatomy of a Murder. I mean, there's so many of these great uh, scores. Uh, also, old uh, interviews that are on it? Tons. I mean, for example, uh, I've been watching the, uh, the these two interviews between Billy, uh, where Dick Cavett interviews Billy Wilder from 1982. He did it on two consecutive nights because how do you talk to Billy Wilder for just one show? And it, it's just it's wonderful. It is a delightful hour long uh, interview. And Dick Cavett, just the the best interviewer of all time, and Billy Wilder, one of the great wits and, and talents of all time. You will learn more in these 55 minutes. <laughs> and perhaps even a whole semester of film school. So, Amy, uh, you also have some other classic films that you want to tout? Oh, sure. I mean, I also am a huge Criterion fan in Footlight Parade. If you have not seen that, oh, my goodness, you're going to die. Um, also, Vernon, Florida from Errol Morris is on Criterion. But what I have been renting this week, because you know, I could rent just about anything right now, I rented Rear Window. <laughs> Speaking of Hitchcock knockoffs. I mean, One of my favorites. Classic. To me, I was thinking, like, I'm locked inside my house. Let me let me watch Jimmy Stewart be locked inside of his house. And it's just wonderful to be reminded of, like, why Grace Kelly became a huge legend in less than a dozen films. The film holds up so beautifully. And I've been doing my own little salute to Tom Hanks. I rewatched Big and I rewatched Joe vs. the Volcano, two of my just favorite films from childhood. I mean, if people have not seen Big since it came out in the 80s, it is just the biggest, completest joy bomb I think that there is. And now that I'm I'm an older woman, now that I'm not a child, I can really understand the Elizabeth Perkins character so much better. You know, she's the character who falls in love with Tom Hanks, not knowing he's a child. And you see why she's drawn to this man with this young energy, (laughs) surrounded by the drones that she's worked with. And she's so jaded and heartbroken at the beginning of the film in a way I didn't understand. It just absolutely shifted under me. Yeah, I want to go back just briefly to Hitchcock's Rear Window. Thelma Ritter, the wonderful character actress, she gives a great performance in that movie. Oh, she's amazing. I mean, she's in that same acerbic vein that she does with All About Eve. I mean, she just comes out of this explosive box in the early 1950s, and she racks up, what, four Oscar nominations in five years? She has this amazing run, and Rear Window is is part of that hot streak. She's so funny. Now, Amy, you have a couple of Netflix series um, that you're really high on. One, the reality show Love is Blind. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, this, this is where I got a little trashy and readed my entire sock drawer. <laughs> um, have you heard about what Love is Blind no. is, Larry? No. So it is a reality dating show, and um, it is where they lock up these people in isolation pods where they can't see anything about what they look like. And they have to talk and decide if they want to fall in love with each other by talking. And the setup is, is if you really connect with somebody, you propose to them. And once you propose to them, then you can see them for the first time. (laughs) And that's the first, like, two episodes. And then from there, it's them really living together, having apartments, explaining to their parents why they've done this. And at the end of the month, they have a wedding that they're going to. And are they going to actually go through with it or not? And I will not spoil this, but I will say that some people do get married and some people don't. And it is 
fascinating, and I watch it all in 48 hours. Love is Blind, the reality series on Netflix. Also, Tiger King, a documentary series, which has gotten tremendous attention and, and was, what, a five-year project of the director? Yes, it is absolute madness. It is a documentary series, and this doc director five years ago started to make a film about the world of big cat keepers, which if people have not followed the world of big cat keepers, it's people, a lot of them in rural areas, have just preserves of tigers that they probably shouldn't have, and they all say they're doing it for conservation. And it turns out that that's just step one, that these people are really, most of them are narcissists, they're polygamists, and they're kind of running de facto cults staffed by young kids who worship these tigers and want to get to hang out with the tigers. And then they make these kids work like 18 hours a day for no pay. It becomes madness. And then you find out in this documentary, well, it opens with it, that they all hate each other. And that of course. the man that we spend the most time with, Joe Exotic, is arrested for planning a hit on a woman um, named Carol Baskin in Florida who's been trying to shut down his business. Let's let's listen to a clip. This from the first et, uh, episode of the docu-series on Netflix, Tiger King, Murder, Mayhem, and Madness. Here we meet the Tiger King himself. I started building this in 1999. Believe it or not, this was a completely empty field. And over 16 years, it's grown into this. My name's Joe Exotic. And this is thunder and lightning. The only difference between my pet and your pet is mine have three-inch teeth and they weigh 400 pounds. Does it feel good to stand on my stage with 500-pound tires and everybody envy you? Absolutely, okay? I would be the biggest liar if I said no. That from Tiger King, the Netflix docuseries. So you're a huge fan of that, Amy. Rationing it out, but I can say that by episode two, somebody loses an arm. Also, they all make country songs. It's a, it's just <laughs> all right. Hey, uh, thank you both so much. Really appreciate you sharing your picks, and of course, we have many more that we'll be getting to with our critics in the weeks to come on Film Week. A chance for you to find out uh, if not the best, at least the favorites of our Film Week critics who, like you, are uh, physically distancing at home and still watching a ton of content as a part of that. Our Film Week critics this week: Amy Nicholson and Wade Major. Now, coming up in just about a minute, we're going to be talking with Adam Schiff. He is the Democratic member of Congress. Uh, we, At the time we recorded this with Adam Schiff, we did not yet um, know that the House of Representatives had passed the stimulus plan and that it's gone on to uh, President Trump for his signature. So it has passed. He'll talk about its implications for people in the entertainment industry. But I want to ask you right now to make your contribution to support Film Week on KPCC by calling right now, 866-888-5722. Thank you so much for your support. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. Congressman Adam Schiff, Democrat, represents the heart of the movie and television industry in Southern California. His district, including Burbank, parts of Los Angeles, Pasadena, surrounding areas like Glendale, uh, is home to multiple studios and to many of the freelance employees who are the heart and soul of the entertainment industry. 
Uh, he and some of his fellow members of Congress had been pushing hard for the stimulus bill to include protections and assistance to those who work in the industry. And the congressman is with us today to talk about it. Congressman Schiff, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Larry. Good to be with you. So let's talk, first of all, about uh, sort of the unique nature of the entertainment industry and the and the tens of thousands of jobs that are that are independent contractor jobs in this industry. How will uh, this bill recently passed affect those folks? It'll affect them, I think, very positively. Um, they're not in a traditional work relationship. And for that reason, uh, when this crisis hit, they were particularly vulnerable uh, because they didn't necessarily qualify for unemployment compensation or other benefits. Uh, so many uh, constituents reached out to me, uh, their representatives in labor through IATSE, SAG-AFTRA, and other collective bargaining units uh, also reached out to me uh, to, to ask for help. Uh, and this became a very high priority for me in this relief package. We were able to extend these protections to freelance workers, those that go from contract to contract, uh, so that they too will qualify for these uh, enhanced unemployment uh, compensation benefits. Uh, those benefits now are extended. They go up to four months in duration. Uh, they also uh, should cover an average salary. Now, I know average salaries in L.A. are perhaps quite a bit different than average salaries elsewhere, and so they may not cover all of someone's salary, but uh, they're probably among the most generous unemployment benefits that we've ever provided, and those will now be available uh, to so many um, hundreds of thousands of people in the industry, but also in other uh, like industries, those in the gig economy, for example, construction workers that also go from contract to contract will now get protection that might have been otherwise left behind. For so many of the listeners in the entertainment biz that we've talked to, they had a lot of work that was lined up, and it might be more difficult for them to show most immediate months, past months, um, the income level that they had lined up You know, going into the summer as production ramps up. Is there any way of that being accounted for in uh, the amount of unemployment benefit? There is, and you know, one of the things that we've been aiming for, and uh, and I hope we achieved, is that you can use other demonstrations of proof. For example, a contract that you had that has been canceled uh, shows what your income would have been. Uh, your prior contracts are also evidence of uh, your level of income, uh, so that they are help determine uh, what uh, amount of unemployment compensation uh, you're entitled to. So. Yes, we want to make sure there were other ways of calculating that so that people could get uh, the full benefit. And uh, you, you said uh, up to four months beyond that. Do you think it's likely, if, if this lasts, that Congress would look at extending it further? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, this crisis uh, is beyond anyone's individual capacity uh, to to deal with and was completely, at least from an individual point of view, um, not something that they could plan or predict. Uh, and so if we get uh, four months from now to the point where people still are not able to go back to work, and hopefully at that point uh, many or most will, but um, there may be parts of the country where that's still not the case, then uh, we will take up additional legislation to extend unemployment even further. Uh, we want to make sure that you know everyone in the country gets through this crisis uh, and that when it's over, our economy can rebound 
Um, one of the things that, that I was really pushing for in the bill and was only part successful uh, is to use the model that uh, some of the countries in Europe are using, which is uh, let the federal government be a guarantor of payroll uh, so that people don't get laid off, so that they retain their employment, even if they're furloughed, even if they're working from home or not able to work from home, they're still on the payroll um, and therefore don't have to go through the trauma of losing their jobs or the difficulty um, to go find a job when this is all over. Uh, and I think those are among the best solutions. We have part of that in this bill, but uh, I think one thing we did right was to make sure that uh, it covers the broadest category of workers possible, including those that are not in traditional employment uh, relationships like so many in the entertainment industry. We're talking with Congressman Adam Schiff. The Democrat represents the heart of the production industry in Los Angeles, Burbank, Glendale, part of Pasadena. Congressman, also theater owners who already were in some cases hanging by a thread are looking at potentially months of closure, uh, but their rents, of course, continue. They don't have any of the concession um, revenue, um, let alone ticket sales. What's what's in here to help them be able to last through this so we'll have movie theaters later this year? Uh, that's a different section of the bill that provi- uh, pertains to small businesses and even businesses that are not so small. Uh, that allows them through the SBA to obtain loans, uh, zero-interest loans or low-interest loans, or completely forgivable loans, which are effectively grants uh, to help them make, meet payroll, to help them uh, pay the rent, pay the utilities, uh, to basically be able to hunker down until uh, the worst of this virus is passed uh, and then be able to reopen. So um, that's a- another very important part of the bill um, that helps these business owners uh, get through this uh, difficulty. Um, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of pent-up demand when this is over uh, for a return to communal uh, theater. Um, you know, there's speculation that uh, this is going to be a great boon to the streaming services, and at the moment, uh, I'm sure the streaming services are busier than ever. But I, I think there's going to be a real desire to come back to the theater when this is over, and we want to make sure those theaters uh, are able to open their doors. Now, have you uh, been on Capitol Hill this morning and uh, just see physically what's changed there? Yes, I'm, I'm uh, at the Capitol right now. Um, I spoke on the bill on the House floor, and uh, it was a surreal environment where we were all staggered throughout the chamber uh, so that none of us were closer than six feet from each other. Uh, We would sterilize the mic or the speaking uh, podium after we used it. Um, We would uh, avoid elevators and take the stairs, avoid our colleagues really uh, coming into any kind of close contact with them. Um, and uh, I never thought I would be walking down these halls on a business day and have them look almost completely deserted. Uh, I'm hopeful uh, that we can get through this without the necessity of bringing everyone from all over the country back, Uh, some uh, of the members, uh, like the public uh, at large, uh, have uh, precarious health situations and don't need to take the risk, or if they don't need to, there's no reason we should compel them to. Uh, when there's a sufficient number of us uh, present uh, and voting that can uh, make sure this package gets passed. Congressman Adam Schiff, thank you. As always, we appreciate your being with us today on Film Week. Thanks so much. 
Thank you. Congressman Adam Schiff, who represents Glendale, Burbank, portion of Pasadena, Los Angeles, and surrounding communities on the stimulus bill, uh, which uh, at the time of our recording the conversation still had to pass the House of Representatives, uh, still likely to do so, talking about the various protections available. Thank you so much for joining us on Film Week on KPCC, and we wish you the best for this weekend. 